You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Systemic drugs in children always should require a little bit of kind of like step back and say, should I really be giving an eight-year-old a systemic drug um, and having kind of a, um, a reasonable amount of um, uh, respect for the fact that these drugs are a real deal. They turn down the immune system or they modulate the immune system and there are potential for real side effects of them. Um, and so because of that, you wanna take this really seriously. But the reality is that eight-year-olds, which horrendous psoriasis or horrendous eczema or other kind of diseases that are socially affecting their lives, really need treatment also. And so it's also a disservice not to treat them if they um, are fa have failed everything else. So I have no um, conflicts of interest with this. I write um, for UpToDate and uh, um, Andrews, but that is not um, getting in my way. Um, so we're going to talk about pathophysiology, a little bit of the diseases, and then really talk about how to use the drugs, hopefully with a bunch of hands-on stuff. There are, of course, off-label things in here because you can't treat children without off-label drugs. Um, most uh, drug companies won't get approval for children ever, um, and so uh, we have to kind of steal things that are approved in adults and decide whether they're safe enough to use in children. Um, and then we're going to talk about the implications of not using systemic drugs. All right, so pretest question. Which of the following labs are required in a 14-year-old on dupilumab for severe atopic dermatitis? And we're gonna do this as like a pretest, post-test, so we'll talk about the answer at the end of it. Is that salt and pepper? That's awesome. For those of you who don't know, there was a band called Salt and Pepper. Um, okay, so um, cool. All right. Uh, which of the following off-label therapies for severe atopic dermatitis in an eight-year-old is typically not used for longer than six to nine months? Methotrexate, dupilumab, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, mofetil, or narrowband UVB? All right, so we start with actually a pretty good knowledge base. I'm gonna to add to that and uh, hopefully we'll learn some stuff together. So um, this girl has psoriasis um, and it turns out psoriasis kevnarizes. In case you ever wondered that, um, there it is. Uh, so she takes her hands and she has um, fingers that are about the size of these plaques and she goes like this on a daily basis across her stomach and she forms these uh, really um, intense lines on her skin. Now looking at her, Almost all patients who enter your office in pediatrics who have psoriasis or atopic dermatitis um, should be, you know, first started with topical therapy. And that, that's going to be true for 99.9% .9 of people. But this might be the person where you look at them and you're like, I'm going to give you some triamcinolone, but I'm 100% sure it's not going to work well enough. And so we're going to have to think about other things to do for you um, because you have almost no normal skin. Um, and so psoriasis is a little bit different in children also. I remember when I first started practicing and I was asking our adult psoriasis guru, I was like, I keep seeing psoriasis on the face. And she's like, that's not a thing. And I agree, that's not a thing that often in adults, definitely a thing in children. So children get psoriasis on the face much more than adults do. Children get psoriasis in the diaper area, which adults do get, but they often don't tell us about. Um, but if you think about where children have the most friction or the most kebnerization, putting a diaper on and off and wiping with a baby wipe multiple times a day is plenty of friction for someone to get psoriasis in the groin. Kids with their eyelids go like this all the time, especially if they are a little allergic or if they've got a little cold um, and you get tons of psoriasis that kind of sits right up on the eyelid. 
how can you tell this is psoriasis? You can see this kind of white plaque in here with kind of these big white scales on it, and you can tell exactly where it starts and stops. Eczema kind of fades into the background where you can't quite tell where it starts and stops. Psoriasis is very discreet. You can tell exactly where it starts and stops. This is a weird version of psoriasis that we'll talk about a little bit, where it actually takes the hair away. It's extremely inflammatory and definitely another good one to know about. And then in kids, psoriasis is highly associated with strep infections when you have guttate lesions. In adults, that association kind of falls apart a little bit according to the adult um, psoriasis experts. But in children, if you have a flare of guttate or dewdrop, or it looks like someone splatter painted someone with psoriasis all of a sudden, they have a strep infection until proven otherwise. You just have to look around for it um, and even consider empirically treating them for it if they have a huge guttate flare. All right, so first things first, um, psoriasis is associated with cardiovascular disease, as you know, in adults. So it is associated with cardiovascular disease, and there are not that many 18-year-olds who are having heart attacks, but at the same time, the disease starts in childhood where you can start building up some of these metabolic problems, and it is very reasonable to make sure that you're kind of screening these people or letting the pediatrician or the general practitioner know that they are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. So these guidelines were put out a couple of years ago, and essentially um, what it says is you should follow people um, for any signs of metabolic syndrome. Make sure that their blood sugars are in good control. Make sure they don't have hypertension. If they're overweight, make sure that we're checking um, liver functions uh, and really making sure we're kind of keeping them in as good health as possible. That also makes the drugs work better. So if you're going to treat psoriasis, ideally you're going to have someone kind of get to it as um, awesome a body weight as possible so that the medications are more effective. The other thing that's at the bottom of here, um, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday with a smaller group, anxiety and depression is super common in children. It's really hard to be a child. You basically, I have no social media, but they tell me you can take pictures of yourself and then it literally fixes you and then you send it out to someone and you're like, look, I look perfect all the time, which is never true, but if you're 14, you feel like that's aspirational because you only look at perfect people on TV and in magazines, um, at perfect looking. Um, anyway, so uh, the bottom line is people have these really, really, um, uh, undue stresses on them to always be as perfect as possible, and skin disease gets in the way of that a lot. Um, so there is a significant amount of anxiety and depression. I highly encourage you to, um, with your children with um, uh, severe atopic dermatitis or psoriasis to be talking about, um, to them and screening them and making sure that they are not depressed um, because it is overrepresented. Um, substance abuse starting at the age of 11, uh, there are children who are um, kind of modeling what they're seeing and uh, if with they have anxiety or depression are starting to use substances earlier than you would expect. Okay. First things first, uh, again, in an effort to not use a systemic drug, you want to go through all the ways that you might get away with not using a systemic drug because they have some risks to them. So um, this was a really large meta-analysis of using tonsillectomy. So the idea is exactly actually like Dr. Clark was just talking about, there's molecular mimicry in psoriasis. So it turns out that some of the antigens on the outside of the strep bacteria look just like keratinocytes. And if your body attacks strep, sometimes it by accident attacks your keratinocytes at the same time time and you can get psoriasis that flares at the same time um, as them. So if you have someone who constantly has flares of guttate psoriasis uh, and then constantly has them uh, with strep infections, they may be harboring strep in their tonsils or adenoids and just removing their tonsils or adenoids may actually make a huge difference. 
Now, you know, this is a major surgery, and it, although it's quick and it's done in children all the time, it still has significant risks to it, but so does putting someone on an immunosuppressive drug for an unending potential amount of time. Um, so if you had to weigh doing a one-time procedure and having some people uh, get really impressive um, uh, passes from that, uh, then it's very reasonable to think that a one-time procedure that although it has some risk may have less risk than a chronic use of a drug. So I do not do this very often, but if people have consistent guttate psoriasis, it's consistently associated with strep, you can't clear the strep, there's strep in the family all the time, just consider tonsillectomy as an option. Often they'll have one other symptom, like if they snore also, or they have some other reason um, to get a tonsillectomy, that's helpful uh, just to kind of um, justify it. Okay, so um, younger kids don't harbor strep in their throat. Um, so if you have a child who's under the age of five, the location of their strep is in their butt, all right? So um, kids don't wipe very well. When they, once they start getting potty trained, they really don't wipe very well because like no one else is wiping them consistently. Um, and sometimes you like have kids and you, um, you're looking at their butt and A, first of all, most children like forget to wear underwear all the time. I never know how this is a thing. The mom's always like, did you wear underwear today? And you're like, I don't think my children have ever walked out of the house without underwear on, and I never asked them. Um, but uh, and when you're examining children and you think that they might have a strep infection, examine their perianal area. Um, again, just as a word to the wise in 2019, do as little touching of children's um, perineum as possible. I don't mean to be too paranoid, but have parents adjust underwear, have parents do the kind of um, uh, moving around and getting um, kids in positions, or having older kids do it for themselves, just so that there's no misunderstanding about kind of like what touching happened. Um, I think ever since the kind of Olympic thing that happened with uh, Dr. Nasser, it, it has become even more in the forefront that even in the, in the you know, um, doctor's office, things are not always perfectly safe. So just you know, protect yourself by having someone else adjust the underwear, um, or at least explaining perfectly what you're doing uh, while you're doing it so that everyone's on the same page and having the parent kind of right next to you. Okay, um, therapeutic options for psoriasis. So topical therapy is gonna work for um, a small number of people uh, um, fully, but it'll work for a large number of people to some extent where it's kind of like good enough. Um, so I often tell people we're gonna start with topical therapy. It may not fully take away your psoriasis. It's not gonna prevent new spots of psoriasis, but it may be good enough. It may make you less itchy and less uncomfortable, and it's certainly a reasonable place to start. You have to be really careful of stretch marks with topical therapy in children. And the reason for that is that kids um, form stretch marks anyway. So your eight to 12 year old girls or eight to 14 year old girls who are going to form stretch marks really um, no matter what, if you give them a potent topical steroid and they need to use it consistently because psoriasis really requires more consistent use of topical steroids, they're a huge setup for um, striae. So this is the population where I worry about it most. I make sure I'm not giving them huge amounts. I'm not giving them six refills of fluosininide or anything that's really potent. And I'm following them up and trying to transition them to non-steroids. Light therapy is perfectly reasonable for psoriasis. I think it actually works fairly well. We've even gotten people light boxes in their house very often. Um, but again, there's a long-term kind of like, how long do you do it? Because you're not curing their psoriasis. So like, what's the end point of it? I'm a little bit less hesitant to give light therapy to someone who has a little bit of skin of color because I think they're a little less likely to burn themselves at home. They have a little lower likelihood long-term long of um, skin cancer. Uh, and so because of that, I feel a little more comfortable. 
So first line um, in psoriasis, I think historically we use methotrexate or cyclosporin first line in children in psoriasis. I really, that's changed in my practice over the last couple of years because newer drugs have been approved. Um, but methotrexate works um, very well for psoriasis. The thing you have to be aware of is that people at, with psoriasis are at risk of fatty liver disease and methotrexate is a liver toxic drug. So you have a limited time course that you can keep them on methotrexate and you may every once in a while kind of lose the lottery and have someone who really bumps their liver functions when they're on methotrexate. So just be aware of that. Cyclosporin, kind of the initial question that we had, cyclosporin is really good at shutting stuff down today, um, but the reality with cyclosporin is that it is very hard to take for a child. You have to do blood work really frequently, so you're doing it like before they start, in a week or two after they start, um, every week or two for maybe a month, and then every month or so after that. That's a ton of blood work for the child. Most kids are like, forget it, I'll take the psoriasis, um, because blood work hurts and it's, and it's um, uh, really anxiety-provoking for children. Children. The other thing about cyclosporin is you can't keep people on for a long period of time. Even children can develop renal disease um, if you keep them on it for a longer period of time, so you have to be very careful. I generally won't use cyclosporin for longer than six to nine months, and what I usually am doing with cyclosporin is I'm starting it so that I can get them to another drug. Acetretin is also a little bit tricky to use in children, uh, although, again, off-label but reasonable for psoriasis, because um, children have moms. So if you have, okay, not all children have moms, that's not fair, but if children have moms uh, who are of um, uh, childbearing years, uh, they, it is a risk because of the fact that acetretin is so dangerous to a woman of childbearing years. So um, I had uh, a child who I inherited from someone else um, who was four years old, and mom was taking the capsules of acetretin and putting them on the child's tongue so that the child could eat them because he couldn't swallow pills and there's no non-pill form of acetretin. That's a horrendous idea. Mom is gonna absorb some of that acetretin through the fingers and if she's drinking any alcohol, it stays in her blood for three years. Three years of not having a baby because you're worried about a retinoid in your blood is a very long period of time um, and parents need to be aware of what they're handling. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more with methotrexate. So really now that etanercept, and we'll go through this in a second, is on label down to the age of four years, which is awesome. Like we really appreciate the company actually being able to give us a drug that you can use in children. Um, that has become one of my first line medications. And then Ustekenumab, um, uh, IL-1223 inhibitor is approved down to 12 years old. Um, I'd just like to make a really brief comment. MAB means monoclonal antibody, and they literally named this drug Ustekenu. It's as if at the FDA they were completely asleep at the wheel and they were like, we don't get the joke, we're just gonna move on. Um, but uh, I'm sure there was some other reason for it, but um, by the way, it's Ustick and Umab. Some of the children are like, why did they name it that? That's really rude, so I actually call it Stelara sometimes. Um, systemic steroids are not a treatment for psoriasis. Don't give people with psoriasis systemic steroids. Um, and it, there are very few blanket statements in medicine. Um, clearly, if they have an asthma attack, if they have something that, that requires steroids to treat another disease or to treat something that's really horrific and they happen to have psoriasis, give them the steroids. But don't use steroids for psoriasis. Because when you get off of systemic steroids for psoriasis, you can get pustular flares. It can actually be life-threatening. That's how bad it can get. People can get erythrodermic um, and they can flare really quickly. Psori uh, steroids work for all sorts of other stuff. They're a really good panacea for lots of inflammatory diseases, but not psoriasis. 
Okay, so old standards for pediatric psoriasis. So these are POSSE 75s um, in some kind of a meta-analyses. Acetretin, 47%, methotrexate, 34%, cyclosporin, 40%. That's not unreasonable. There are a fair number of people who are doing okay, but it's certainly nothing compared to the biologics that we now have, um, especially in adults where you're talking about POSSE hundreds and really significant numbers of people getting to at least a POSSE 90. Um, so uh, um, the old school drugs, they don't not work, but they don't also work super well, and they also have more toxicity that's broader to the immune system. Um, so they're, they're agents that we use, but we um, often uh, will consider biologics. All right, lab differences in children. Kids are really anxious about labs. They hate labs. They have to sit there with a needle in their arm for a good minute or two while blood is being drawn out. It freaks them out. Um, and that's true of a lot of adults also. Um, so in general, when we're using methotrexate, which is the main thing that we're getting labs for, um, we do the dosing schedule that rheumatology does. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Wolverton that goes through and talks about lab, um, labs for uh, systemic medications. Um, if you did that to a child, they wouldn't have any blood left, okay? So Wolverton talks about like starting at a very low dose and increasing a little bit and checking labs and increasing a little bit and checking labs. That's really not um, necessary in a child and in the reality, it's gonna make the children never wanna use the drug. Um, again, caution in people with high BMIs, but typically where I start is a half milligram per kilogram. So you have a 25 kilo child, you give them roughly 12 and a half milligrams. If I'm worried about them, I might give them 10 milligrams. I start with the full dose in the beginning. Again, this is off label, but this is what rheumatology does for their diseases, and they kind of taught us how to do this. And then we check labs at baseline. We check them two to four weeks after starting and then every two to three months while they're on it. Um, the labs you start with are a little bit controversial, but at least a CBC and uh, a, a full metabolic panel, including liver functions and kidney functions. Um, Many of us in pediatrics, because of the fact that we trained uh, in adult medicine also, will do a quantifiron gold and a peep or a PPD to check for tuberculosis before giving methotrexate. The reality is you almost never find that to be positive. So some would argue if there's no history of someone having exposure to tuberculosis and they're five, six years old, um, that you don't have to do that. Um, I still do because it's an easy test to avoid a really major problem. Um, and it probably is cost effective even to find one out of 500 people who actually do have tuberculosis. Um, screening for Hep B and Hep C is the same idea. Um, you know, in adults, you screen for Hep B and C before immunosuppressing people. Children have much less Hep B and C, and they're actually vaccinated to Hep B. Um, so you could argue about whether you need to do this or not. Um, some people in our practice do it. Some people don't. Uh, I don't think there's a right answer. You can kind of figure out what your population is at risk for and decide whether you want to do it. If they're older children, they're sexually active, they might have gotten into IV drug use, et cetera, you definitely want to check. Um, but for younger children, you, you, um, you may not have to. And then mothers handle medications. I had a patient who had rheumatoid arthritis and the mom was crushing the pills of methotrexate and giving them to the child while she was pregnant. Um, methotrexate aborts fetuses. Like at high doses, that's what it does. So please make sure that no pregnant moms are touching methotrexate. It is a category X medication. It's in the same category as Accutane, but it actually causes even worse problems. Um, so just be aware of what you're prescribing because moms will touch it. You know, that's true for things like Tazerac too. So Tazerotene is category X. No one thinks of Tazerotene as category X. It actually, you're supposed to get a urine pregnancy test before putting people on Tazerotene according to the PDR. How many people do that? 
Yeah, exactly. So I actually do do it, so I raised my hand. Um, but uh, tazeratine um, has kind of similar indications. It probably doesn't matter for most people um, because they're not going to be pregnant, but if a mom is smearing tazeratine on their own child and they're going to be touching it consistently, just make sure that they are not pregnant. All right. Um, we actually looked at our vaccine rates uh, by, um, by accident because we were looking for hep B vaccination uh, um, rates while we were uh, starting people on methotrexate um, and found that roughly 69% of people's hep B vaccine doesn't work, at least based on the commercial testing um, that we did. They're probably still immune to hep B. It's just below the titer that you can find in the lab. But we have a lot of people where we check for hep B and they found that they're not immune and we have them go get a booster shot around the time of starting a new systemic medication. So I'm starting methotrexate, I check for hep B, I make sure that they have surface antibody. If they don't have surface antibody um, and they're not immune, then we have them kind of re-up their uh, immunity. Children get vaccinated for hep B within the first year of life, so most of them do have a hep B vaccine that's happened. Um, and uh, um, again, they might still be immune in reality, but if you can't document it and you can't see it, it's very reasonable to kind of give them one booster. You don't need to restart the entire series. If you give them one, usually when you check, their surface antibody um, titers are really, really robustly positive. Um, the other thing to remember is that children get vaccinated. So hopefully for all of your um, communities that are not non-vaxxers, vaccines are extremely important um, just to, um, go through that. And all, all of the biologic medications out there are contraindicated with um, live vaccines. So, you know, if you have a 50-year-old, it's not as big a deal because they've already gotten all their vaccines. If you have a 15-year-old, it's not that big a deal. But as we start using biologics down lower and lower and lower, you have to think about maybe getting people their vaccines before they start their biologic. So if you have a five-year-old who hasn't gotten their varicella vaccine or their MMR vaccine, you may want to have them get their booster before you start the drug, even though you're kind of waiting a little bit of extra time. Um, it's worth it to make sure that they don't get measles. You know, no one thought that measles was going to come back with, an, with a um, roar, but the reality is there's a ton of measles now. Um, and uh, people who uh, can't get vaccinated because they're immunosuppressed or on an immunosuppressing drug are at extra high risk. And so um, it's reasonable to think about vaccinating before you start. Dupilumab, we don't really think about it as an immunosuppressing drug, but the reality is dupilumab also says in the label, don't use live vaccines with it. Um, so uh, even with dupilumab, which again is probably gonna be the one you're gonna use in the youngest age group in the long run, um, you wanna think about making sure that they have their vaccinations before starting, um, or uh, at least letting the parents know that they're not gonna be able to give live vaccines when they're on it. All right, so this was Etanercept. This was a few years ago now. This was long-term safety data um, uh, with a really long follow-up. Um, Etanercept is not the most powerful biologic, but when you have someone who um, can use a biologic on label down to the age of four, that's super reasonable. Um, and uh, it's often what I'll start in those younger kids because I have an on-label drug. Um, it, uh, the dosing is in there. Um, you go up to the max, do max dosing of 50 milligrams. There's now an auto-injector. I have nothing to do with this company, but the auto-injector actually hurts much less, at least in our patient's experience, which is great um, and uh, is more convenient for the families. So I like this as a, as a, um, uh, a biologic um, that can be first line uh, in these children as long as they've kind of failed topicals and you've considered light therapy, et cetera. Um, Ustikinumab, I think, is really effective in children. Um, I have very few children who have ever failed Ustikinumab or at least not gotten a ton better. Um, and usually they're kind of like naive to any medications. They haven't used anything. 
um, and uh, um, they usually do really well. It's approved for over 12. We occasionally use it in kids who are younger. Um, the dosing is out there because it's on label. Um, under 12, the dosing starts becoming weight-based dosing, and you can get a vial. So normally you're getting these pre-filled syringes for adults. You can get a vial because there's a vial that's meant for inflammatory bowel disease that you can use to kind of dose kids under, um, uh, who are underweight with the eustic enumab. So this is special. I don't think any of us would look at this when, and be like, oh yeah, of course you have psoriasis. You have a bleeding, crusty mess on your scalp that's like, um, looks like you have a massive crust of dried blood. Um, but this is a version of psoriasis that happens when people get TNF-alpha drugs. Um, so in children, TNF-alpha drugs are given all the time for rheumatoid arthritis, they're given for psoriasis, they're given for um, other uh, chromo and other um, rheumatologic diseases and, and inflammatory bowel disease. And what we've found is that a fair number of people who get especially infliximab, kind of second is, is adalimumab or Humira, and then etanercept is a, a distant third, um, you can actually get psoriasis from your TNF-alpha drug. It can take anywhere from a few months to up to 10 years to happen. Um, and it can look like regular old psoriasis, or more commonly, it looks like this intertriginous, very scaly, kind of cracked, fissured version of psoriasis, often with really bad scalp disease. Not all of them need to switch off of the TNF-alpha drug, but the reality is that um, this can get bad enough where they can get scarring alopecia, and it can be really uncomfortable, and people kind of go from like hating their inflammatory bowel disease, but it's under really con good control with infliximab, and all of a sudden their skin becomes more of a problem, and they're willing to even get off of a TNF-alpha and change to a different drug because their skin has turned into such a nightmare. Um, when we first saw this, uh, we thought it was rare. Um, it is not rare. Um, when we looked in our JIA patients, this happened to up to 5% of people who had started a TNF-alpha drug had gotten some sort of psoriasis. And it doesn't make any sense. How are you getting psoriasis when you're giving someone a psoriasis drug? Um, and what's really happening is that there's dysregulation of these th things called plasmato uh, plasmacytoid dendritic cells. Um, and these cells are directly attacking the skin, and it's kind of T-cell independent. So what does that mean in English? It means that if you stop the drug, these kind of go away, and they're not generating memory cells. So you shouldn't have psoriasis for the rest of your life in most people. There is a small subset of people with inflammatory bowel disease who are going to get psoriasis anyway because those two diseases go with each other. Um, and so those people may have psoriasis that lasts a long time. But for most people, if you switch them off of a TNF-alpha drug to another class, um, they generally get a lot better. Um, this was one of my patients who uh, had this really inflammatory version of um, psoriasis in the scalp. This was called tinea. Certainly tinea is more common in the world. So if you're going to you know, look at a child's scalp and you see scaling and alopecia and maybe some pus bumps, culture this, make sure it's not bacterial, make sure it's not fungal. Um, but in, in um, uh, the setting of having gotten a TNF-alpha inhibitor, just remember TNF-alpha inhibitor psoriasis. The other cool thing, um, which I can't remember what I put in here, um, the other cool thing is that eustichinumab tends to treat most of the stuff that TNF-alpha drugs treat. So if you have inflammatory bowel disease and you get TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis, eustichinumab actually tends to make that better. Um, we've had a couple patients with um, chromo, which is chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis, which is a rheumatologic disease. They've gotten psoriasis from TNF-alpha drugs. We've switched them to eustichinumab. It tends to make things better. Um, so this has been our go-to as an anti-inflammatory drug when we're switching people off of TNF-alpha alphas for TNF-alpha-induced psoriasis, um, at least in children, because we have an on-label drug, um, and we have a drug that often treats the other disease that people are treating anyway.
Um, just random stuff. I'm going to show you a bunch of like random data for, and these are almost all case series. They're, so they're not like great data. Whenever you're watching someone present, look at the number of people that have been treated. If they're like, this worked super well, and they treated two people, then you'd be like, well, I'm not sure that's actually going to work for everyone else, because you probably reported the two people it worked on. If it was 1,000 people, then it's probably reliable. This, these are a bunch of studies that are like two people, OK? So um, you stick in UMAB uh, has a theoretical benefit actually for um, atopic dermatitis because it becomes a TH1 disease and chronic disease. Uh, and they, um, they found that uh, um, in these couple of adults that they got people better. The only reason I mention this is occasionally people have failed everything or they have a contraindication for everything and you want to have number 99 on your list that has been used that you can kind of pull out of your pocket if you really needed it. Um, this is also a really rare disease, but just demonstrates a really cool point that's about to happen. Um, so uh, there's a woman named Amy Powler who is probably the smartest pediatric dermatologist and does the most lab work. And uh, she has looked at all of the ichthyoses, or many of the ichthyoses, and found that when you have an ichthyosis, you have this kind of congenital dry skin condition where your skin barrier is defective. But what the body does is actually turns up inflammation because of that skin barrier issue. And when you turn up that inflammation, you often are activating psoriasis pathways. And so psoriasis drugs may actually work for ichthyoses. It makes no sense, if you think about it from the back, to say, well, you have a dry skin condition that's just a genetic condition. How can you give an anti-inflammatory drug and make that better? But what you're treating is the secondary inflammatory response that's happening. Um, and she's gotten some really good results. So this is a very rare disease called DSP. Um, and uh, this patient got a lot better. Um, and it's been generalized to a bunch of other stuff. It's been tried in Netherton syndrome. Um, actually, the IL-17 inhibitors have been um, uh, proposed for Netherton syndrome. There's a trial that's ongoing. So if you have patients with ichthyosis, again, this is not going to be first line. But if they're really struggling with it, they're very severe, stay tuned, because we may actually have biologics that are actually going to help them. Again, super off-label, but uh, just really interesting. Um, this is kind of her data, um, again, uh, kind of science-y, but she took people with lamellar ichthyosis, with congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma, epidermolytic ichthyosis, and it didn't matter what she looked at. Um, they basically found this IL-17 upregulation in these um, uh, uh, people, and because we now have drugs that target a bunch of this pathway, we have drugs that might actually be really helpful for them in the future. Um, we're not sure yet, but uh, it's certainly being tested. Um, this is another one where it's like, you know, number 99 on your list. So this is a patient of mine who has trisomy 13. Um, we actually published this a few years ago, and I talked to mom, and I was like, oh, he has trisomy 13 that's um, mosaic, right? Because it can't affect your whole body, because there's no way he could be 20 and still have trisomy 13. He is actually a full trisomy 13 and miraculously has lived to 20. But it, cert it turns out that with some of these kind of genetic disorders, you get horrific acne. He has the worst acne I've ever seen. It's covering his entire chest back. He has this kind of hydratinitis overlap in his groin. He drains um, out of his face. He has sinus tracts that are draining out of his face at all times. Um, and it causes him to seize. So even though he's nonverbal, and we're not doing this for any sort of cosmetic reason, it is bloody, it's messy, and it causes him to have seizures. So tried him on all the typical stuff. He was put on doxycycline. He was put on long-term amoxicillin. Uh, 
Uh, he was given isotretinoin for like three years. I gave him isotretinoin with and without steroids. I gave him steroids alone. I even gave him systemic dapsone, which again, we're getting like off and off label. I eventually gave him adalimumab, um, which is again, super off label, but has been reported for really severe nodular cystic acne. Um, and the only thing that actually seems to work in him, and the picture kind of just shows a lot of scarring, but it is a lot better, um, was actually ustekinumab. So again, not something you should be giving to people um, commonly at all, but it's number 99 if you have uh, failed everything else. Um, almost no one fails Accutane. Accutane works like 99.9% .9 of the time, um, but if it does fail and they truly do have an acneiform eruption um, or potentially hydradenitis, um, ustekinumab is, is a reasonable option. So this was another um, patient from our clinic uh, who had really severe hydradenitis. She actually had um, uh, degradation all the way down to her muscle. Um, and this was not functional for her. She can't go to school. She can't do anything. She can't move. She's in horrific pain all the time. Um, she had failed everything also. She'd failed adalimumab, um, uh, systemic uh, immunosuppressants. Uh, and again, um, the thing that actually got her better was this ustekinumab also. So I present these things because you're the people who are going to be seeing the people who are sent in because nothing worked so that you have things on your armamentarium where you can say, oh my gosh, there are a couple of case reports of this. It doesn't mean it's always going to work. This is certainly off-label, but not unreasonable to kind of turn down inflammation similarly to how um, uh, the kind of psoriasis pathway does for other diseases. This patient also got hyperbaric oxygen, and that may have been the thing that really made the biggest difference. Um, but with the um, combination of the two, uh, she healed completely and is kind of able to get back to her life. Um, all right, so atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is like a significant portion of my life. I'm pretty sure I see eczema patients more than I see my wife if I added it all up. Um, that's sad, I just realized that actually and it just came out of my mouth. Okay, I'm gonna have a moment of silence for my own life. All right, so um, really severe eczema tortures children. Imagine, so like if you have a bug bite on your arm and you're itching like one spot, it's annoying and you itch it and you're like, oh, I wish the wish would go away. If you had a bug bite covering like 90% of your body surface, area at all times because it's that itchy at all times. Um, it is torture. And it's not only torture for kids, it's torture for families. We find lots of families where there is significant strife between parents because of the fact that children are itching all the time, no one's sleeping, everyone kind of gets disrupted. And so we need to think about systemic therapies in children with bad eczema because it makes a huge difference to them. So no doubt, most eczema can be treated with topical steroids, um, and I'll show you that in a second. Um, but eczema has a huge quality of life impact on, on um, kids. So um, uh, it's amazing to think about, but things like diabetes, which have obviously a major um, life shortening effect if you have type 1 diabetes and a major adverse effect on people's lives and can lead to lots of risk factors, have about the same negative impact as atopic dermatitis. So this, although it's just a skin disease and we're not real doctors and all that, so this matters a ton to families and to, to children, um, and it's really important to take it seriously and to treat people aggressively if you need to. Um, okay, so just a few um, thoughts about atopic dermatitis. Uh, I, I know some of you were here yesterday and some of this was reviewed, but um, eczema is a barrier issue when it starts. So you have a barrier issue, you have skin that um, has a broken skin barrier. It's kind of like you have a cake that doesn't have enough icing on it. Um, and so the cake falls apart because the icing isn't protecting the cake. Um, and uh, with that, if you actually take children who are at risk for atopic dermatitis and basically prevent them from ever having a broken skin barrier 
by moisturizing them right from the beginning, you actually can prevent about half the people from ever getting eczema. Okay, so how does this work? You're seeing like the two-year-old in your office, they've got some moderate eczema, mom's pregnant, they're having another baby, they're like, what can we do? And you're like, well, the two-year-old, we've got like a few options, but you're kind of out of luck, but the next baby, we might be able to prevent their eczema. When they're first born, when you start bathing them at you know, week two or week three, um, start emoliating them also immediately. And so they never have a broken skin barrier. We're the ones who break people's skin barrier more by washing babies in like baby soap. So we're taking all the oil off of their skin, and if we're not re-moisturizing them right away, we're taking a modestly broken skin barrier and making it more broken. So in this trial, they used all sorts of different moisturizers. They just started moisturizing people within the first three weeks of life and continuing for six months, and essentially found that they could re um, reduce the rate of atopic dermatitis by 50%. That is the most cost-effective thing on the planet. There is no way someone can mention another co more cost-effective thing, because petroleum jelly at the dollar store costs a dollar, because it's at the dollar store, and it you lasts a month, and you can prevent a disease that causes billions of dollars worth of healthcare dollars for a dollar. Um, that is unbelievable. Um, so uh, this probably, um, if people could do it consistently enough in a study, would work this well. It probably doesn't work this well in real life, um, but really emoliate from the early stages, and you may prevent a lot of atopic dermatitis. Um, I also bring this in here, um, and the reality is that generic topical steroids have been around for a long time, and they are super cheap, and I will just tell you what I do. I can treat 99% of our patients with these three topical steroids. Hydrocortisone, 2.5% is fine for the face. You can use it for short periods of time in little babies. Um, if you have eczema, and it's very um, reasonable. Triamcinolone 0.025 is like your strong steroid for kids who are like one or two years old if you need it um, for a period of time. And then and uh, if you really, really need something really strong on the face, you could use it on the face if you needed. And then triamcinolone is your stronger topical steroid when you need something that's extra strong. I'm talking about prepubertal children. Once you get to be a 14-year-old, you can do basically what you're doing in adults, except for maybe not musical betazole. Um, and, uh, and the reality is people get very confused about topical steroids. We see people who come in with the bag of steroids, and the parents have spent like $400 in copays because they have a lotion, a foam, and like some other vehicle I've never heard of that's mixed with like some botanical thing I've never heard of. And the reality is ointments are very, very effective. Um, and they don't burn when they go on the skin, and they don't have a lot of additives that kids get allergic to, and you really don't need to get really expensive with topical steroids. I apologize to the um, exhibitors. All right. Um, 60 to 80 grams, you guys know this because you prescribe a ton of medicine, um, but 60 to 80 grams for the pediatricians, it's, a, and it's useful to know we'll cover the body for a couple weeks, and again, you can use topical steroids on the face. So when all of that doesn't work, what do you do? So you've wet-wrapped someone, you've gun potent topical steroids, you've kind of eliminated everything in their environment, you've taken care of their eczema um, as well as possible. What are your options for systemics? So light therapy, again, is perfectly reasonable. I think it works okay for eczema. I think it works better for psoriasis than it does for eczema. It works okay if you have someone who's got a darker skin type who is a little bit older, who's willing to kind of do light therapy um, and potentially get a light box in their house so that they can kind of continue it for a little while. Um, I think that's a reasonable place to start. Dupilumab is now on-label. You have an on-label drug starting at the age of 12, approved for atopic dermatitis. Um, the trials have been uh, um, enrolled and mostly completed for kids who are much younger, all the way actually down to six months of age. Um, and so stay tuned, so hopefully it'll be approved for younger children at some point. 
The drug that we typically start with in children with eczema, although this is probably changing now with dupilumab, is methotrexate. Um, if you look in the literature, they talk about using cyclosporin for atopic dermatitis, and like that's the gold standard. And there are plenty of eczema people who would come up here and like punch me and tell me that that's true, and it's only cyclosporin. Cyclosporin's the best. I hate cyclosporin with a passion um, because it causes so much kind of um, uh, side effects in children, and they need so much blood work that they end up hating it, and it's not a long-term drug. But again, if you need to shut down eczema today and you have a family that is on the verge of collapsing, cyclosporin is a reasonable drug that's to start while you're getting something else started or getting, something, uh, getting your plan for the next thing you're gonna do. I think most people don't use azathioprine or mycophenolate mofetil anymore um, in children for eczema just because the safety data um, doesn't seem to be that awesome. So methotrexate's used in kids all the time. It's not like a super safe drug. It's not like, oh, we're just giving them water. It is still a real immunosuppressing drug or at least immunomodulating, um, but it's been used for rheumatoid arthritis. It's been used for inflammatory bowel disease. It's been used by us for eczema and psoriasis for a long time. And we kind of know the devils that methotrexate is. When parents read about methotrexate, they read about the methotrexate side effects that are associated with cancer treatments. When you have cancer, you get a gram of methotrexate. You get 1,000 milligrams. When you have psoriasis, you get like seven and a half, all right? So the side effects are not gonna be the same when you're comparing those two. So um, in terms of uh, long-term safety data and um, being able to maintain the therapy for a little while longer than some of the other immunosuppressants, I think methotrexate has a definite role. Um, and if I have someone who's you know, four, five, six years old who needs a systemic agent, I will typically give them methotrexate. Of course, this is off-label. Of course, they have to fail topical first. Of course, you make sure they don't have infection, all the other stuff you're gonna do. But when you're in a corner and you have someone who is horrendously itchy and um, not doing well, methotrexate's reasonable in my mind. Um, dupilumab, uh, I am very excited about, I have to say. I have nothing to do with the company, but I am very excited about this drug. Uh, dupilumab uh, has worked extremely well. We have 20 or 30 kids on it, um, probably more in our practice at this point. Um, and you take someone like who's on the left side of your slide, or the right side of your slide, um, who has severe atopic dermatitis covering his whole body, itches and scratches all the time, and within a few weeks of being on dupilumab is much less itchy, and within a few months has almost no eczema. Um, this kid now walks in the door and I barely recognize him, so he's actually started exercising again. He's lost like 50 pounds, um, and he is just a super happy-go-lucky kid. When he first came in, he was shivering in the corner because he didn't have any skin barrier because he was so erythrodermic for so many years. Um, he had used um, many potent topical steroids. You can see some of the stretch marks that he has on his arms, um, and dupilumab's really changed around for him. Um, dosing for dupilumab off-label is a little bit all over the map, um, so different people do different things. The original pharmacokinetic trial did two to four milligrams per kilogram, so I try to stick with roughly four milligrams per kilogram, but it comes in a pre-filled syringe. When you have a pre-filled syringe that doesn't have any hash marks on it, you can't even tell where halfway is, it's very hard to dose something uh, off-label because you don't know exactly how much you're giving. So there are ways of doing this that are off-label. Um, I've heard of places where basically they put it in another syringe um, and then kind of measure it out. You have to be very careful of the sterility of doing that. You have to be careful that you're using the right size needle. Um, and uh, hopefully the company will help us over time as it gets approved for younger children figure out an easier way of dosing it. Um, this was just uh, some of the newer data on dupilumab. It showed that it worked on every body site equally. So um, no matter where it was, it got cut off a little bit here, but uh, extremities, head, neck, um, hands, feet, et cetera, it works um, equally, which is great. 
Um, other uses for dupilumab, and again, this is off-label, you don't have to do any of these things, but just FYI, we now have a drug that targets the Th2 pathway, and there's lots of stuff that's actually um, uh, the Th2 pathway is involved in. So this is someone who has long-term use of topical steroids, is completely erythrodermic. I don't, there's a whole like face, um, what's that thing called? I almost called it FaceTime, Facebook. I have no social media. There's a thing called Facebook, right? All right, so Facebook has a whole thing about um, how if you use topical steroids, your child's gonna get red, they're gonna get addicted to them, and they're the most horrific thing in the world. Well, I mean, that's a portion of true. If you use a tub of triamcinolone on a child every day for the next, like, year, you probably are going to get them addicted to topical steroids, and they're going to get this kind of, like, red skin syndrome. Um, and so there are children who come in, and they're, like, they've got completely red skin because they've used a ton of topical steroids with no breaks. Dupilumab is one of the ways around that because you treat them with a systemic and you can get them off of topical steroids. Methotrexate is a similar idea. Um, and so I think this is gonna be very helpful for treating kids with really severe atopic dermatitis or really severe atopic dermatitis with um, kind of red skin syndrome. Um, there is a lot that's new on the, tar on the horizon. So this is one of those things that kind of like I look I want to puke, but someone understands it. I was fortunate for them. Um, so you have all of this Th2 pathway, which releases a ton of cytokines, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of inflammation. And so there are now a ton of other targets. There are roughly 30 drugs that are in atopic dermatitis trials at this point, or the planning stages of them. So stay tuned, because I think we're going to have really good treatments over the next five or 10 years. Um, and we're grateful to pharmaceutical companies who actually do these trials in children first, um, because this is a pediatric disease mostly, uh, and uh, the children can suffer just as much as the adults. Other random off-label uses. Um, so mastocytosis is something that we see, and usually a single mastocytoma or a couple of mastocytomas, no problem. Um, but in the very rare instance where you have mastocytomas that cover almost the entire body, or what's called diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, this was just a nice study showing that omalizumab, which is an anti-IgE antibody, um, actually had very good benefit for these patients who really don't have a whole lot of other options. You can give them antihistamines, you can give them chromalin. Um, they work kind of marginally well, but again, these kids' lives are really significantly impacted if they have severe cutaneous mastocytosis. This is not for the child who has like 10 mastocytomas or even 100 mastocytomas. It's for the child who has almost no normal skin. It's just all mastocytoma. Um, this is dupilumab off-label just for itch. Um, so interestingly, uh, you know, you can, you, you guys know this, but you can give people antihistamines as much as you want for eczema. It's not helping their itching. Eczema is not a histamine disease. So, you know, we see people come in and they're on Zantac, Zyrtec, Hydroxazine, Ciproheptadine, and you're like, okay, eventually, like, give up. You've targeted the histamine receptor and it's not working well enough. You have to move on. Um, in acute itch, histamine certainly plays a little bit of a role, but in chronic itch, you see this IL-4 receptor um, uh, alpha uh, um, on here directly on nerves, and that is what's actually targeted by dupilumab, uh, and so you can actually potentially get to chronic itch with dupilumab also. Um, so there are a couple of kind of small reports of doing that which are um, uh, reasonable. Um, systemic contact dermatitis, this was thought to be a Th1 disease, but this um, group uh, looked and, and found that there's a really significant upregulation of Th2 pathway, um, and potentially with systemic contact where you're eating your contact dermatitis, so like balsam of Peru, um, fragrances, uh, propylene glycol, uh, nickel, um, then you may actually be able to help these people also. Again, off-label, again, small study, but kind of stay tuned because there are probably other uses. 
Um, this is chronic urticaria. Chronic urticaria, um, the, wow, that got flipped to the side. That's so cool. I actually thought it was a bar graph, and then I realized it was actually writing. Um, but you can ignore that. Um, I'll just tell you the answer. Um, it worked a little bit, and most of these patients had already failed omelizumab, which is the kind of like usually last gap for chronic urticaria. Um, but uh, blocking IL-4 actually helped that also. This is dupilumab and alopecia areata, um, and um, cool. Uh, so this, uh, that cut off a little bit also, but basically um, what there are two studies, there are actually like six or seven case um, reports now, or eight case reports now. So most of them show that it helps alopecia areata. Occasionally it shows that it actually causes alopecia areata. So I don't think we know at this point, but just be aware of that. And maybe it does neither. Maybe it's just people get alopecia areata and they happen to have eczema. Um, but alopecia areata, vitiligo, and eczema do kind of go with each other. Um, this is a very rare disease called eosinophilic annular erythema, um, which is basically looks like hives that don't move at all, um, so that you've got these kind of big red welts in the skin. It's a little bit more difficult to see in someone with skin of color, um, but it looks like these big red annular welts in the skin, but they don't move like hives, and if you biopsy them, it's filled with eosinophils, um, and dupilumab actually um, has uh, been uh, beneficial, at least in one patient with that also. Uh, that's steroid withdrawal. So methotrexate studies in pediatric um, atopic dermatitis, just to kind of show you, because people, you'll read in books, and they'll say cyclosporin is superior to methotrexate. In children, cyclosporin is equal to methotrexate. There are multiple now big um, studies that are case series, so they're not perfect data, that show that methotrexate is roughly equal to the benefit of cyclosporin. It's much easier to give, it's much less lab work, um, and it's much um, better for children. This is the future of atopic dermatitis, lots of drugs, um, and then, cool. Last thing we'll talk about is Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which hopefully you will never see. Um, Stevens-Johnson syndrome is that awful drug reaction where you blister your skin, you blister your mucosa, it has a really high risk of death, um, and it turns out that uh, the classic treatment, which is either just really good wound care in a you know, an, an burn center or a high-level intensive care unit, um, we've used IVIG as our standard of care at our hospital for a long time, but Etanercept actually now has a randomized control trial that shows that it works at least in adults. And there's one or two reports of using it in children. I've used it in a child um, and found that it was dramatically effective in someone who had already failed IVIG and prednisone. But just be aware of this. I don't know whether you'd cover a unit where they would ever use this or whether someone would just call you and ask you what they should do for Stevens-Johnson. Um, and it's not necessarily the gold standard, but just FYI, this is something that's new and interesting and may become more of the standard of care across the country. All right, post-test questions. Which of the following labs are required in a 14-year-old on dupilumab for severe atopic dermatitis? By the way, you don't need blood work for dupilumab. <laughs> I tell this to the medical students all the time. There's no reason to hide something. Like, I'm just gonna ask you a question and then tell you the answer and then, you know, repeat back the answer. And as long as you know the answer, awesome. Way to go. All right. Uh, cool. Which of the following off-label therapies for severe atopic dermatitis in an eight-year-old is typically not used for longer than six to nine months? Awesome. Yeah, cyclosporin. It's a little bit toxic. Uh, it's significantly toxic um, to take and cause a lot of side effects and needs a lot of labs. So. Cool, all right, I left some time for questions. Happy to take questions on anything. Um, 
Again, remember these things are off-label, uh, but we have therapies, and it's not okay to kind of with, um, withhold therapies from children who are really suffering. You really want to make sure that you at least have um, uh, um, some uh, um, uh, reason to kind of give it to them, but also not under-treating them. Cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? All right. How often will gut taste psoriasis in children turn into plaque psoriasis later on in life? Um, I tell people that they have won the strep psoriasis lottery. If they get gut taste psoriasis, I treat them for strep and it magically disappears. I don't have an exact percentage for you, but I think that is the minority where it kind of goes away and it stays away. I think the majority of them do go on to develop real psoriasis. Amy Powler actually put out a study showing if you start with guttate psoriasis, you often end up with more recalcitrant, more severe psoriasis over time, at least in children. Um, lab monitoring for, uh, for methotrexate, again, um, what I typically do is at least a CBC, CMP. I actually check for hep BC and quant golds in the beginning. And then I, uh, at two to four weeks after you start it, I check again. And then every three months I check as long as everything is normal. If things aren't normal, you obviously repeat that a little bit. The only labs that you're checking at two to four weeks and every three months are the CBC and the comprehensive metabolic panel. So you're checking liver and kidney functions and CBC with diff. Um, do you guys use calcium trying off-label and those under 18? Absolutely. I didn't actually know it was off-label. Um, I never, in pediatrics, everything's off-label. So like, I think water's off-label. Um, so calcipatriene, we definitely use as a steroid sparing agent in psoriasis. I think that's a great way of having people not use steroids every day. We do the classic like five days of steroids and two days of calcipatriene. And then once you're under better control, you switch it and you do five days of calcipatriene and two days of steroids. Totally reasonable. Do you start sexually active girls on OCPs that you're starting on methotrexate? Um, so this is a little bit complicated uh, because methotrexate will um, may abort a fetus. Um, so, uh, it, it, but if you're taking a low enough dose, it may not abort a fetus. So what I do is I do a ton of counseling and I tell people if you did get pregnant, you're probably gonna have a baby who has really severe birth defects. Um, and, but I don't standardly put them on OCPs. I'm excited when they are on OCPs. Fortunately, most of the children that we're treating with methotrexate are under the age of 12, because over the age of 12, we actually have a lot of other options that aren't methotrexate. Um, but yes, I would definitely at least have the conversation. I would consider OCPs, but I don't standardly do it like I do with Accutane. Uh, can you really, what happens when you consume alcohol and isotretinoin? Okay, so isotretinoin and acetretin are different drugs. When you consume alcohol and isotretinoin, I can tell you from personal experience, not a whole lot, but don't do it a lot. All right, so, um, I shouldn't have said that. Okay, I would say that to like one person, but not 300. All right, isotretinoin, you're not supposed to drink alcohol and isotretinoin. They both go through the liver and you can cause liver issues and you can see bumped ASTs on that. You should definitely make sure people are not binge drinking or drinking excessively on isotretinoin. 
The much bigger issue is acetretin, um, which is seriotane. If you eat acetretin and you drink alcohol at the same time, it esterifies, I think that's the verb, into something called etretinate. Etretinate stays in your blood for three years at that point. Once you have an, a retinoid in your blood for three years and you're trying to get pregnant, you are going, it's as if you're on Accutane for three years, okay? But it doesn't happen with Accutane, it happens with acetretin, which is a psoriasis drug and other things. Um, okay, so how does it change your management? I just tell people about the alcohol consumption. What I actually tell um, adolescents, because I think it gets through to them better, is I'm, I give them Accutane and I say, if you drink alcohol, your liver's just gonna like fall out your butt. Um, and then people remember that, and they're like, oh, well, I guess I shouldn't do that. Um, I think the more you can make it like approachable for them, uh, I think we, I, I do this all the time, I think we use language where all of the other people in the world are like, what were any of those words? That's like a totally different vocabulary. So you wanna kinda put it in language they understand. That doesn't actually happen, just so you know. Um, what's the lowest stage you'll start a patient on methotrexate or cyclosporine? This is again something where like I wouldn't necessarily follow what I would do. I would use like four-ish or five as your low age for methotrexate. I have started people lower than that. Um, rheumatology does start people lower than that. I really don't like using cyclosporine in kids that age because there's so much lab work and they get really freaked out. But I think methotrexate um, at uh, um, you know four or five is, is reasonable if someone has horrific atopic dermatitis. How long would you wait before live vaccines and starting biologics? That's a really good question that has a very distinct answer, and I, I hesitate to give it to you because I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, I, I think it's somewhere between one and two months, but that would be a really good call to the immunologist and say, hey, by the way, do you remember what this is? There is um, a reference on that from um, the Journal of Clinical Immunology, which is in, uh, um, uh, I'll get it for a different talk and I'll, and I'll give it to you. Um, but it talks about kind of uh, biologics and, and vaccines and it gives some guidelines, although they're not perfectly clear. Um, do you check urine pregnancy treat um, prior to Rx? Absolutely, I'm sorry that I didn't mention that. If you are a woman of childbearing years, honestly, if you're like 10, I'm checking a urine pregnancy test before I'm giving you methotrexate. I check urine pregnancy tests absolutely before starting methotrexate on any girl who has even the remotest chance of being pregnant because you definitely don't wanna give methotrexate to someone who's already pregnant because they won't be pregnant anymore. And although they may appreciate that, um, it's not something that you wanna be the one doing. So definitely check urine pregnancy test before giving methotrexate. Do you see an increase in sebdermin patients on Stelara or Humira for Crohn's disease? Um, I think they get a lot of SIBO psoriasis, so I guess you could call it sebderm. It's kind of in that category of getting a little bit of kind of psoriasiform, like intertriginous, a little bit of scaling in the scalp. That's usually the ones where you don't have to actually stop the drug. Um, you can usually just treat through it. Any document cases of IL-17 um, or 23 induced cases of psoriasis in children? Not that I know of, although I've heard rumblings about people talking about that idea. I wonder though with those very small cases whether it was just someone who has inflammatory bowel disease, who happens to have gotten psoriasis because they were gonna get psoriasis anyway, and they happen to have been on a, um, an IL-17 or, uh, or 23 direct. So I, I don't know of any off the top of my head. Um, Isotretinoin therapy in teens with severe nodulopathy, even at tender dose. Okay, so um, uh, pseudotumor cerebri, I would definitely let your neuropthalmologist or whoever's guiding that guide you as to whether they're allowed to use isotretinoin. They will probably say no. If you have severe nodulocystic disease, that's where I think off-label adalimumab is, is reasonable because there are a few reports of using adalimumab for acne, um, but it's really for the severe nodulocystic type. If it's mostly comedonal, just treat them with topical and give them a ton of topicals and they usually make it through. 
All right, they're cutting me off stage. Have a nice morning. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.